0: Welcome to the AJP Heart and Sark podcast. I'm Kara Hansel Keehan. Today we'll discuss a new study by Nara Simpulu et al. titled Mechanisms of COVID 19 Pathogenesis in Diabetes. This article was published August 4th, 2022. Joining us today are Associate Editor, Dr. Keith Brunt, Senior Author, Dr. Denender Singla, and Content Expert, Dr. Mark Chappell. Let's get started. Keith? Thanks, Kara. You know, this was an interesting review that highlighted some of the key findings to date in regard to the pathophysiology of COVID-19 caused by the SARS-CoV-2 virus, particularly as it relates to diabetes. The virus, as some know enters host cells through the angiotensin converting enzyme 2 receptors, which is somewhat concerning for those with any form of cardiovascular comorbidity. The article touches on several undefined and also key mechanisms that relate to diabetes or cardiovascular medications and even the implications for short-term and long-term recover clinically. I feel this should be required reading for anyone embarking on research into diabetes comorbidity in cardiovascular disease, since this is a global phenomenon that has really impacted everyone directly or indirectly. What I really valued was the insights into the viral variants and how this variation influences glycan linkages, and possibly even the means by which the virus is accessing host cells, thus contributing more more or less to systemic injury. However, it's the implication sections for the varied therapy and comorbidity management, both acutely and over the long term, that is really worth spending some time considering as you read through it. The virus has caused our community great hardship medically as we try to manage the pre existing conditions with the acute and the long COVID infections. Where some commonly used medications are shown to be neutral, beneficial, or even possibly worsening the risk profile due to their interrelated mechanisms, this article highlights that and has implications for those managing pain, depression, hypertension, and of course, diabetes. It's a fantastic read with something for everyone, whether you're a new student, molecular physiologist, or clinician scientist. There are questions, concerns, and also some hope on the horizon presented. Dr. Singla, Dr. Chapel, hello. Let's highlight some of this, shall we? I'll start off with you, Dr. Singla. You know, we're rounding out the seventh major wave of this pandemic, and I know we're all tired. of it. Yet early in the pandemic, when we had to lock down because we had no protection and no understanding of this disease at all, the virus caused some devastating effects called a cytokine storm in many people. Could you just touch briefly on this cytokine storm for our new learners and why it was wreaking havoc on our systems beyond the lungs in organs like the heart or pancreas?
1: Thank you, Mark and Keith. Really, what is the cytokine storm? It is a hyperactivation of the immune system and release of uncontrolled cytokines. There are inflammatory cytokines such as interleukin-6, TNF alpha, and many other cytokines. These cytokines start damaging the organs and the tissues. Once organ, tissue, cells getting damaged, there's an infiltration of additional inflammatory cells, such as monocytes, and they further keep continue causing this release of inflammatory cytokines. For example, I give you an example of heart. We do the heart research in the, in the heart research once virus enters into those cells, they kill some of the cells as a natural organ system. A heart becomes frightened and it initiates infiltration of monocytes, which further produces cardiovascular hyperinflammation and cell death mechanisms that starts damaging the heart. Similar mechanisms happen in the pancreas, however, some different type of cell could vary. In certain cases, it could be a monocyte, in other cases, it could be a T cell or a natural killer cell. The continuous infiltration of inflammatory cells and the release of inflammatory cytokines, which causes organ damage, is a cytokine storm.
0: So it's, it's almost like a flaming ball that just keeps rolling from cell to cell to cell and having different effects on on each. And I and I think what I took away really quickly was, you know, something that's been catching my attention, particularly as a cardiovascular person, it was the endothelial damage. Now, Dr. Chapel, we probably both learned early that endothelial damage is often quoted as a harbinger of all cardiovascular disease and SARS-CoV-2 seems to be either a catalyst directly or at least is exacerbating all the pre-existing comorbidities that damage endothelium. Can you comment just briefly how how this realm of virology has made cardiovascular clinicians and scientists so anxious about the future of cardiovascular health generally?
2: Yeah, thanks, Keith. That's really an excellent question. I think um, over the last two to three years uh, with the SARS pandemic, I think it's really altered our view of the effects of the virus on the cardiovascular system, and particularly uh, the renin-angiotensin system, which really is one of the, you know, the driving forces in cardiovascular disease. And, and a lot of our, you know, therapeutic approaches are really targeted to, to blocking uh, the renin-angiotensin system. When we were originally thinking about SARS and, say, uh, endothelial dysfunction and inflammation, I, I think many people thought, oh, that must be targeting ACE2 because the mechanism for infection is the binding of SARS and specifically the spike protein uh, to ACE2 and subsequent cleavage by TMPRSS and then internalization of this uh, viral ACE2 complex. Um, however, I, I, I think really when you look at the vascular expression of ACE2, it's it's actually, it's, it's not predominant. And, and really the, I think there, the other components of the renin angiotensin system, such as ACE, ANG2, the AT1 receptor, that certainly could be involved in endothelial inflammation, oxidative stress, more long-term fibrosis. I, I think those are more impacted by overall inflammation that's caused by SARS rather than a local uh, impact on ACE2. Again, we're, we're really the the vascular expression of ACE2 is rather minor compared to the other components of the renin-angiotensin system.
0: It's interesting because, you know, Denender, you mentioned that there's different effects on these different cells. And of course, ACE2 is not restricted just to endothelium, but in in several other places. The receptor itself is an interesting mechanism because while it's a regulator of renin-angiotensin, it's also an anti-inflammatory. So does this present us with a, a a novel pathophysiology that's either a double-edged sword of damage or a catch-22 where we need we need it, but we also want to suppress it. And you know, will that potentially influence how we survive the initial infection, or is it more of a long-term impact concern, in your opinion?
1: Uh, as Mark said, it, uh, ACE2 is beneficial, and in, in that's why we use the ACE2, uh, ACE inhibitor. Once the levels of ACE2 inhibitor goes up, it shows the beneficial effects. When the virus enters into the system, it binds to the ACE2 and it start decreasing the levels of uh, ACE2 receptor. And uh, so the beneficial effects, which are such as uh, anti-inflammatory and basal isolation goes away. But then once the beneficial effects bin- uh, goes away, of ACE2 when virus binds it, the pathway of destruction starts, which impacts further on the cellular mechanism and cell death mechanism. That's where the uh, organ starts uh, failing.
0: And and so one of the organs that you really highlighted in the article that I appreciated was the, the pancreas itself and sort of the meta-inflammatory uh, sequel of disease. So could, could you maybe Just briefly touch on this. Is is this something that's linking to what we see in long COVID with some of the diverse symptomology? Um, And and why is this such an important consideration for people with diabetes?
1: This is very important for a healthy individual, for pre-diabetic, for the diabetic. I take this answer into three different components because but uh, let me give you an example of the pre-diabetic and healthy. There are studies which are sh- showing very clearly around maybe as high as 20% of the case, uh, cases which when people got COVID-19 and they were having no pre-existing diabetes, they start developing a diabetes. And the mechanism they find out is it's possibly the ACE2 receptor on the ekinner cells. Acinar cells are present onto the pancreas, which produces helps in producing insulin and helps to decrease the diabetes. Once A2 binds to those A2 receptors present on the acinar cells, and the levels of those acinar cells and the uh, cell gets damaged, and the glucose uh, insulin production reduces, and there's an increase in diabetes. Similar is the case in the case of type 1 and type 2 diabetes. In fact, in the case of type 1 and type 2 diabetes situation is much more complex because in those cases the defense mechanism for diabetic people is much lower as it's widely published there's increased oxidative stress there's a decrease in uh, anti inflammatory defense mechanism which gives a prone to increase the disease development uh, due to infection and viral load into your body.
0: And I, I think that was something that I, I really feel that people should take some time to think about, you know, because we were we were seeing early on that that people with metabolic disease like diabetes and obesity were having worse outcomes. And we, we attributed a lot of that, I think, to the endothelial and vascular dysfunction and organ damage in the kidneys and other organs. But, you know, you highlight in your article very well that point that while it's a, a, a risk factor to outcomes in, in the COVID-19 uh, presentation, it's also potentially increasing our incident rate of either type 1 or type type diabetes. Now, I have friends in, in with both of these conditions, and, and I guess this is something that should we really be planning, or is this a rare event, I guess is, is a question. Is this a rare event where we're creating new cases that wouldn't have otherwise been created of either type 1 or type 2 diabetes?
1: This is a very good point you raised because long-term studies are needed to understand. Uh, and another, the nature of the virus is changing continuously. The change in nature of the virus, what is impacting this onto the individual with type one or type two diabetes? The question goes in many different directions. Uh, it depends whether that individual has a, any comorbidity disease such as hypertension along with the diabetes or a cancer and or an autoimmune disease, whether even they don't have the disease, but they were susceptible to those diseases which could happen five years from now or 10 years from now, it is possible. When the individual is got infected with the COVID-19, it has enhanced that mechanism rather than having the disease five years from now. They are having the disease happening immediately, or it it is could be it, another way. It could could be possible. It could be reversible, as you just said it, because uh, that question is possible. There are a number of anti-cancer drugs. I can give you an example of uh, ponatinib, doxorubicin. When those drugs are given, many of the side effects are reversible, whereas many of the side effects are permanent and many in many cases people who develop cardiotoxicity 20 years after the exposure to doxorubicin so there are this is a combination of factors or individual genetic system could also impact how they're going to develop the disease following covid-19
0: that's really interesting now mark you know i i think going back to you you mentioned that the hypertension and and, uh, medications like ACE and ARB are potentially intersectional in in this, either an acute phase or a chronic phase. I I wonder, you know, for somebody who has hypertension or metabolic syndrome, who's maybe medically managed right now, you know, good or or not so good, what are the implications there, do you think, from what we need to um, convey, you know, to people studying these diseases but also to the patients themselves to, to think about?
2: So I think, you know, again, I, our perspective, again, on COVID has, has changed somewhat. And really that, you know, we have to look at the disease as an acute phase. And then I uh, certainly brought out in the reviewer article the, the long-term or, you know, effects the long haulers of COVID. And uh, I'm, I'm certainly was really struck by a recent study in Nature about, A much higher incidence of cardiovascular disease, particularly heart failure, atrial fibrillation, uh, in patients who had COVID a year out. I mean, it's it's scary. The, The numbers, the data is very scary. And the question is then, as you raised, is does this demand a new type of treatment for maybe potentially a new type of disease? One thing that's come out recently, there's a large clinical trial called Nectar, which was treating acute COVID patients with an AT1 receptor blocker to block part of the the RAS, this ACE-AT1 axis, so-called classical axis of the RAS or the bad axis of the RAS. But then also uh, in a subset of patients giving directly anch one 7 which is the product of ACE2 Which has antifibrotic, anti inflammatory, vasodilatory properties. Now, what was quite interesting in that study is both the AT1 antagonist and the one to seven arms of the RAS were terminated prematurely due to deleterious effects as compared to just normal uh, treatment in these patients. The results of these studies then may maybe just really reflect on what really are the the best treatments uh, in terms of COVID. And again, how are we really uh, assessing alterations in the RAS and the contribution of the RAS? And and even saying the RAS, and really what we mean, are there two different arms of the RAS? And there's an ANG2 arm and a 1 to 7 arm that ACE2 can kind of control that balance. Really, how are we looking at that in COVID patients? And I just want to add that, that I think some of the things that we're looking at is actually other aspects of the RAS, such as autoantibodies that patients generate uh, to the AT1 receptor, to ACE2, and do these uh, autoantibodies also interact with the Ras, and are these prolonged, particularly in uh, some of the long-term effects we may see in patients? And could this be a contributing factor, rather say, than direct effects on, say, Ang2 or Angiotensin 1 to 7? We really also need much better animal models to look at both acute and long-term effects of COVID and potential therapies.
0: You know, that's I think that's a good point to make is you know do we even have the tools at our disposal and and it feels so much like we're setting ourselves into a new path where we've disrupted this pathway centered around AC2 and so many different systems from the and Dr. Single, you, you identified the immune system becomes you know repressed after after long covid uh, recovery we see new autoimmunity. So there's been some some implications to stroke and blood clotting, um, as as well as the the new onsets of, of diabetes. And and so I guess it, it feels to me like we we need to all be thinking and preparing ourselves, not just to be looking back retrospectively, but even prospectively, like how are we going to prepare ourselves for these challenges ahead? So maybe Dr. Singla, you know, you you mentioned some, some opportunities already with, with diabetic medications where DPP-4, for example, was potentially something that might be brought back into the metabolic um, limelight because of this. And, and so with this disruption in, in how we're thinking about this and this interrelationship between cardiovascular and metabolic health, how, how do you foresee things progressing in clinical trials or clinical observation studies?
1: Yes, we definitely need uh, lots of studies to understand uh, really the exact role of ACE2 receptor and the COVID-19. And uh, there, are, there are some controversies where uh, if you, let's talk about DPP-4 and uh, which uh, decreases metabolic inflammation. At the same time, DPP-4 increases ACE2 receptor levels. Now the question comes, do we want to increase the ACE2 receptor level? If somebody got infected uh, with COVID-19 and we are increasing the ACE2 receptor level, are we giving the way for the virus to come in and cause more disease? Or there are we, the alternative we should have where we can control the metabolic inflammation and the other sources of inflammation, but we should not increase the levels of ACE2, the, those are the studies being proposed, decreasing the level of, levels of ACE2. If we are decreasing the levels of ACE2, are we increasing the vasoconstriction? So that is another concerning problem. Another studies are being thought of if we can storm the system with a large amount of ACE2, we can confuse the virus binding to the abundant amount of ACE2 receptor present in the bloodstream rather than presenting onto the individual cells. So cell damage will be decreased sharply and virus will be eliminated from the system. So uh, in, in short, more studies are needed. As Mark said, it, we definitely need more cl- preclinical model and more d- detailed studies in a different uh, DPP4 uh, innovator insulin uh, used to control properly diabetes and see how this uh, virus is two interactions can play a role as well as uh, the decreased amount of uh, pro inflammatory cytokine storm.
0: It's interesting because, you know, this starts to expand beyond the molecular mechanisms into the implications that as you mentioned in your article for for trials and and stakeholders. So review ethics boards who might be looking at inclusion or exclusion criteria might have to consider what uh, standard of care medications are already present and and what the implications for monitoring hypertension, uh, hyperlipidemia and diabetes for stability in the event of an interventional prospective trial, testing some of these theories. So, you know, how, how concerned should we be or, or should we hold off on some of these trials and wait for these preclinical models to be more sophisticated?
1: Yes, we, we, we should go uh, hand by hand to see in both cases, how can we develop the preclinical model and how we can uh, do these studies more interestingly which I did not address in the article yet as uh, the NIH should offer more research for the individuals who are infected with COVID-19 versus non-COVID-19 for the long-term and short-term monitoring of their disease development, especially for the people who are having diabetes, but they were not having a hypertension, who were not having a lung disease. All of a sudden, with the aging, they might be developing a lung disease or a heart disease. But whether the symptoms we are receiving now from the COVID-19 pre-exposed patient versus non-patient, is there any different symptom? Should we treat them differently? Should we, the progression of the disease is different? All those questions needs to be answered and we NIH definitely should pay more attention onto the preclinical models as well as uh, clinical models to understand uh, what are the best methods should be adopted you know
2: that's an excellent comment and I, I let me just jump in for a second i was uh, co-chairing a NIH NHLBI workshop on uh, covid and and one of the subjects we talked about was sex differences in covid and Subsequent effects, long term, and I know in your review article, you, uh, I think you discuss sex differences, and and you know, it it seems that that for COVID, men suffer from this much more than women, and and it's not clear, you know, why there's a sex difference in terms of COVID, and I and I wonder if you, you could discuss a little bit. Is that true for diabetes, are COVID and diabetes, or are women still Still protected, and if so, what do we think are possible mechanisms? And again, this gets back to how we, you know, treat those patients with sort of the comorbidities of say long-term COVID and say diabetes or cardiovascular disease.
1: Yes, Mark. Uh, so far, so we. The published literature sh- shows a uh, yes. The men has a more COVID nineteen versus women. The reason they are justifying is a. Uh, the men have more levels of ACE2 receptors. The the receptor binding is increased uh, with the virus, as we know that. So that is a fundamental difference they are showing it. uh, If there could be more than other, because for now everybody is concentrating onto the ACE2. I am definitely sure Uh, it is not the ACE2 only. And uh, as we are learning, we have uh, done uh, some studies on the RNA sequencing. There are studies published on RNA single cell nucleus sequencing. The data shows, even in the heart, that they, there are many structurally differences between men and woman hearts, and there are woman heart has a more anti-inflammatory pathways or mechanisms or they can protect the, their heart better or the organ better. So the exact reason why COVID is infecting more men, not the woman, is truly not known.
2: I mean, I think that's an excellent point. And I would agree. I don't think it's just ACE2 expression between men and women, but there have to be other factors, maybe the degree of inflammation or anti-inflammation Um, or suppressed inflammation in women that that would explain these differences. And I think then it also becomes important in terms of what happens to menopausal women. Particularly in the cardiovascular field, we think that menopausal women lose the protective effect potentially of estrogen uh, and catch up with men and whether that's true for COVID, either acute or long-term effects of COVID. And obviously, that's, again, a growing population, as you said, in terms of as, as our overall population ages. And again, that the future of what COVID variants and how they affect the cardiovascular system or diabetes or the the combination of the two, we just don't know what's going to happen.
1: That is correct. Those are all open questions because uh, you mentioned in the beginning comment, this is seventh wave. The virus nature is continuously changing. The spike protein alterations are happening, whether we are heading towards good direction or bad direction, we still do not know. All those questions will be upcoming. And major concerning point is uh, more than 600 million people are infected in the world. And around one-third of the population in USA, which is around 100 million people, are positive with COVID-19. Those are the reported cases. There are many unreported cases as well. What will be the future of the health and how this cardiovascular health or diabetic health will behave twenty years from now? We do not know. In my opinion, we should be prepared better.
0: Well, I I think you just nailed it on the head, Dr. Chappell, Dr. Singla. Thank you so much for the paper, for the discussion, uh, for the highlight of of really emphasizing, you know, centers of excellence and priority. This is a virus and a condition that is going to be with us for some time as best we can we're going to try to prevent people from being infected and vaccinate our population so that we we have you know survivable outcomes but the long-term implications are huge so thank you for discussing this thank you for the paper thank you very much thanks for listening to this episode of the ajp heart and circ podcast our theme music was written and performed by ray mitchell Catch the latest episodes of our podcast at physiology.org journal slash heart.